Hello and welcome to Social X, the podcast from Humentum. My name's George Miller, and my guest on this episode is Erin Rutich, who's Director of Learning at Thrive Worldwide. The educational and the therapeutic are the two key aspects of Erin's professional life. Erin, who's from the US, has been based in Nairobi, Kenya for the past eight years. There, as Thrive Worldwide's Director of Learning, she designs and delivers psychosocial training programs for attendees in over 15 different countries, customising those programs for cross-cultural environments. And as a therapist, she specialises in trauma and cross-cultural transitions, working primarily in the areas of immediate crisis response and long-term relational trauma. She's a great advocate for psychological safety in organisations, creating a culture in which every individual feels they have a voice that will be respected and listened to. We'll come back to all of those things in our discussion and also hear about the challenges and benefits of being what Erin calls an extrovert psychologist. I think what happens is therapy with me looks a little different, if I'm honest. I interrupt people more than the average therapist. I laugh with people more than the average therapist. There's a lot of activity in what I do. But that's the other reason I'm drawn to trauma therapy, because trauma therapy is fairly active and involves the body. You have to interrupt. You have to kind of direct more than the average kind of humanistic approach to it. So that might be why I do that. But we began, unsurprisingly, by talking about the pressures of the times we find ourselves in, when COVID-19 has changed so many aspects of our private and professional lives. And with life so altered, often so restricted, it's creating new stresses for individuals, organisations, whole societies, and new challenges for professionals like Erin. I asked her to tell me how she thinks Kenyan society has changed since COVID. It's a very good question, actually. It's changed everything. This is a community in general. So now I have to make sweeping statements, but this is a community in general that still values face-to-face interactions, that still values group thinking in a good way. Like, what does the community say is a powerful voice. So it's been very tough at first on a whole different level, I think, for people to work from home. I can't see your face on the non-video things or I can't tell what you're communicating because a lot of right from here up is not enough for a Kenyan. How you stand, where how close you are, all of those dynamics are missing. And then we have a lot of different cultures within Kenya. So there's a lot we're missing in that too and not gathering, you know, traditions which around the world have been questioned have been very difficult. Funerals, weddings, all of those So there's been a a lot of, and this is what we talk about as psychologists, a lot of grief about losses and changes and those kind of things. I think at the same time, Kenya specifically, here's where I'll get into us. We have an election coming up in about two years, but believe it or not, that's fast enough that we're already all kind of prepping our minds and hearts for that. And there's been a lot of political things going on at the same time. So like many people in the world, when you have COVID-19, but then you have some other kind of environmental stressor, it just makes it bigger. 
So it's created this kind of how are we talking to each other and trying to be kind to each other in a time when this has happened. And what I have noticed is a lot of people paying more attention, intentionally trying to be kinder to each other. My big passion is taking care of their staff. And that has tripled, I think. HR people, um, CEOs, COOs have said, oh, actually, I really do care. And I want them to know I care. And so how do I intentionally deliver that, which is much different than before? That's at least one positive benefit from a clearly bad situation that perhaps things which managers were were allowing just to go unaddressed, COVID has forced things to be addressed. So, you know, with the latest Humentum conference, I talked about psychological safety, which is basically does every individual feel like they have a voice? It's not necessarily how much do they use it actually, but do they feel like they can speak up, especially about difficult topics or about potentially embarrassing things? And and that comes up with whatever culture you're in. And I've noticed lately the remote learning thing, right? When I am addressing a Kenyan audience, a Tanzanian audience, a DRC audience, our region, which I feel fairly comfortable with because I've worked here for the past eight years, the first 15 minutes has to be catching up, even if there are 40 people in the room. So it's a very odd, like everyone's talking at the same time. It does not feel Western at all. So if you get onto a Western remote meeting, people take turns or you're listening. You're, it's like you're overhearing a conversation between two people, right? Oh, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Those people will take turns. No, when you get onto a Kenyan meeting, it's like just a lot of joking and talking. And, and it has to be given for 10 or 15 minutes if it's a good team. If it's a team that doesn't work together or or has some conflict, open conflict, then they, they won't do that, obviously. But it's been really amazing to see how that translates. And it builds safety quite a lot, actually, to allow for that time. Because it's like we're culturally translating what we need to do in a remote milieu, which is powerful. And that for you, as someone coming into East Africa from the United States, it's, a, it's like learning a new language, isn't it? It's, it's, it's learning to, to listen and sort of and not judge according to your pre-existing cultural rules, but actually listen and work out what is going on in order to be able to communicate within that cultural context. Yeah, we haven't talked about this, but I married a Kenyan. So that does help me a bit. And I will say I'm from the South in the United States. You can tell I'm American by my accent. And we do have a bit of a communal feel like especially around the dinner table, we'll talk over each other. But yet you're right. Nothing prepared me for that level of kind of um, group activity until I got married and, and kind of immersed myself in this culture. I joke with people that I think I wouldn't have been able to do a, a cross-cultural move and a cross-cultural marriage. And I got two kids. My bonus is what I usually call it. The second I got married, I don't think I would have been able to make that many shifts if we didn't have very similar values to begin with. And our cultures were a little bit more similar than people assumed they were. But in general, it was a very big waking up process. I tell people a lot, I'm a big extrovert, which is actually not, you don't find that with a lot of psychologists. 
So <laughs> that helps me. The, the noise and the chaos. I also have four kids. I'm about to have five. That's okay with me. There's something about that, that the open door policy of people coming to visit without telling you, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I love. So that helps me <laughs> adjust. But it's still, it's very different. The kind of nonlinear conversations and the circle kind of all being involved and the joking is really rapid in Kenya. That's a very cultural thing for us is we're quite, um, or Kenyans, I'm, I'm becoming more and more Kenyan, but we're quite blunt and a bit more, we make fun of each other in our jokes. So, you know, that kind of rapid fire, like, where have you been <laughs> kind of stuff. It's taken me a while to get used to it. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to come back to the um, the extrovert psychologist if we've got time. <laughs> that's 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 really a thing I talk about with people a lot. Take me back, Erin. I'm always interested, you know, at that moment when someone finishes their studies and they're sort of thinking about the direction their life is going to take, and what what sort of things are motivating their decisions. And I I wondered in your case if you can cast your mind back to that that point. Do you feel like your course was already sort of set towards the, the the things which motivate you now or did you take some time to kind of find your direction yeah this is a big question i'll try to tell it in parts what got me into counseling and therapy is that like many other people it changed my life and i was diagnosed with an inflammatory disease and it actually brought more healing the talking cure brought more healing to my body than the medicine i was on I didn't understand that at all. Like that was a revolution to me. So that's partially what got me into counseling and therapy and all of those terms. Every country uses a different term, actually. And that's why I pursued my master's degree. But as a child, I was very unhappy with the lack of diversity in my town and in how I thought and how I grew up. Even in my religion, I just knew from a very young age, like, I'm only getting one side. And so, believe it or not, my parents would host people from different countries. That exposed me to, oh, there are other sides to this. (laughs) So from an early age, I had that travel, whatever you call it, bug. or um, And I went to... Senegal in 2002, which was somewhere in the middle of my university bachelor's degree. And it was partially due to my extroversion and and my love for people that it was like I set foot there and thought, gosh, in a weird way, I fit better here than I do where I'm from. Now, since then, I've rethought that a lot because, you know, thinking about white saviorism and how that applies and colonialism and this echo of that, like whenever you do have a lot of privilege and you come to this continent, you have to encounter that at some period. And I have married a person of color and I have two kids, my first two, who are complete Kenyans. And then I have two mixed kids and then I have one on the way. So it's been a very big challenge to rethink through what parts of my history were motivated by. I can help other people watch me go help (laughs) and where that has shifted. Because now what I find actually is do psychologists help? Yes, we completely do. And I believe in the talking cure and we could get into this later, but I'm very big into trauma therapy and that has a big need 
in this area and need for it to be accessed easier than it is, cheaper, um, more frequently, all those kind of things. But I think what has stayed true, the line that has stayed true the entire time, is that my love for people needs to be in a more collective communal society. And even it makes me sad to live in Nairobi sometimes because we are losing that. It's a big city and it's international, which I love, but we're losing a sense of connection to big family structures and big communal structures over time because it's just impossible to keep that in a big city environment. So that I think that's the through thread. Do you think there's also mental health cost to that kind of societal change or is that is that too simplistic? No, it's it is simplistic, but usually simplistic things have a lot of truth in them. That's the unfortunate part, right? Yeah, whenever we lose something, we usually gain something too. I mean, I hate the whole social media argument because it's it's like black and white and we can't do that anymore. We have social media, we're online. Like let's get over that and figure out how to use it for the best. I love cities, but it is a loss in a city that you cannot depend on people the same way that you might not know your neighbor. There is a mental health cost to that. We've seen it in COVID-19 bigger than any time. We are all isolated in our homes going, who are our communities? And we say these basic things in our resilience activities or our talks with people of, have you called someone today? But it has to be said because otherwise people don't. So there's something that has happened with COVID-19 that's kind of shown us the hole, the gap in our thinking. We were just kind of going about our day scrolling through, making it okay that we accidentally interacted with people. And now the intentionality of that has challenged our system and, and, and made people really think about who am I connected to? Who are my people? What does that mean? This is a really interesting thing, but I I love my family and I'm very close to them. My parents especially are able to make it out every year and a half, somewhere around there. It's been longer now because they can't. (laughs) Um, But my husband has spent the last six months without seeing his family now. He's the oldest of nine siblings and it has almost killed him. Like really, it's been very difficult on him and then by proxy by everyone around him. He feels very unsettled by that. And that's taught me a lot about his interactions and seeing people in person for him is very different than making a phone call. So for me, I'm I'm so used to doing this that remote behaviors that I just have been more intentional about calling my best friends and calling my family. But for him it's been a big struggle and that's that's taught me a lot. That experience that you describe in your husband is one which will be replicated in all sorts of different cultural contexts worldwide, and it will be taking a psychological toll, and that psychological toll might not manifest immediately or even quickly, but, you know, and and this is relevant, obviously, to the context in which you're working professionally, it's exerting a burden on, on people who may already be in stressful situations. Is that something you're already sort of thinking about preparing for tackling addressing in in your professional capacity yes again so it's interesting because this almost conflicts with our first conversation about will we ever want to go back to work in the same way but this is it's a weird flip because the other side of this is 
What will we do about interactions, in-person interactions, when we can finally do them very freely? Of course, everyone's talking about it economically, but psychologically, this is like World War II, where it will mark something so heavily that we're going to start a different generation after this. We're going to have a whole different psyche after this. Everything changes after this. Everything has changed already. So I think actually most uh, psychologists, counselors, mental health professionals are just waiting and watching. What what will it be? I can't predict it completely, but it, it will change us. Tell me, Erin, a little bit about Thrive Worldwide and what your role is there. I love talking about this. Um, so I was a part of an organization called InterHealth that was started by retired missionaries from the 1980s. Um, with this idea of there's not good medical care or mental health care or well-being in general for those people who return from long-term work in a different country. Now, that broadened over time to be mostly humanitarian workers and maybe temporary workers, because nowadays it's not the same model of you disappear for decades and then you return. You know, there's a lot of transiency to it. But with that said, when InterHealth closed, which it did now 2017, there were a lot of the clinicians, especially the people who delivered the work, the medical care people, people like me, the travel nurses, all those people who still wanted to continue, but recognized that we needed a bit of a different model. And so we together formed Thrive Worldwide. Really, our desire is to help organizations and individuals. used to be a lot more of a focus on the individual, but now it's really about the organization. Create safe, holistic, focused on the well-being organizations that can not just say, oh, we're doing good, but we are good and we're healthy internally and externally. And that's been a real passion of mine. So what's happened with my role specifically is because I've been in in the psychological sphere for about eight years, the same amount of time that I've been in Kenya. But my whole career has included adult learning, which is why I love facilitating, which is why I love facilitating online. So all that ties together. So I really quickly wanted to be and asked to be the head of all of our learning programs because most of them are mental health focused. So you need to be in the clinical sphere to think through that. But you also just need to be a really good communicator and facilitator and value what each adult attendee brings to the room. So maybe this is where we sort of circle back to the extrovert psychologist, Erin. And this might just be my sort of prejudices that the extrovert will probably be a really good communicator and facilitator, but might be less good on the sort of the listening and the assessing side of things. Is that pure prejudice on my side? Or is that something that you have to kind of work on? Yeah, no, it's a general broad group way of thinking, right? So I think what happens is, like most things in in personality work, there's a scale, right? And so there are a lot of people who sit in the middle. But you're right, because actually, I'm a big extrovert, so I'm probably on the end. I think what happens is therapy with me looks a little different, if I'm honest. I interrupt people more than the average therapist. I laugh 
with people more than the average therapist. There's a lot of activity in what I do. But that's the other reason I'm drawn to trauma therapy because trauma therapy is fairly active and involves the body. You have to interrupt. You have to kind of direct more than the average kind of humanistic approach to it. So that might be why I do that. But I will tell you, it's also why I work with Africans a lot. <laughs> they don't want a quiet person in the room. If, if you're quiet, then like, where's your expertise? So it's it has benefited me in the world I'm in. It works. I will not say that it works everywhere. And I my listening skills have improved dramatically in this field. And that you are a lot more quiet than you are with your friends. That's just the listening, active listening thing. But I bring maybe more of that. And it does look different than what people think of as the typical couch session that other people have experienced. <laughs> you said you're, you're working both on the health of individuals and simultaneously the health of organizations. When typically might an organization call you in? And what might they be, what kinds of things might they be experiencing to, uh, to prompt them to do that? The classic one, especially with helpers, which is humanitarians, any kind of environmentalist, those developmental agencies, governments, those people, when they have a crisis, when they have a critical incident, when something has gone horribly wrong, then they think psychology, <laughs> mental health. That is shifting, I will say. But that's the classic one. And so you're almost working backwards. Like, yes, now this has happened, but what's the great way of treating your whole entire team, of helping people be more resilient the next time this happens so that you don't call us frantically, or of even preventing whatever happened? Because if it's human on human, then there's some probably prevention angle to it. I guess what is also taking place is a sort of broadening appreciation sector-wide about the nature of trauma, the, the the multiple types of trauma, the complexity of that, the way things interact with each other. So it's, it's not just maybe, as you say, a single disastrous precipitating event, but there's more, there's more complexity. There's two reasons why it's changing, which is really interesting. But from my point of view, this is not um, research-backed or anything. But what's happening in the corporate sphere which is trickling down eventually to other spheres, is it turns out happier workers work harder. So that's happening. It's well recognized by huge companies. I mean, a lot of people have been doing work on this forever. Google, you know, Facebook, they know. They've been trying to figure it out. They have whole divisions that are thinking about workplace happiness, right? That's eventually trickled down to some other industries that are far from that, like, like ours. But the other thing that's happening is from the other direction, even people can tell, wow, we're spending a lot of money providing for traumatized individuals. So actually, how do we do that better? Even if the one person is injured, gosh, the amount of money that they will spend on therapy for that person or just moving them, extracting them, having to deal with the critical incident itself makes them rethink their model, which is also helpful. And when you go into an organisation, I guess you're not seeking to impose a, a prepackaged solution. You're really trying to understand the internal culture of that organisation, how it works, and also how change within it might might be introduced. 
And that must be complicated. Yeah, it's a big investigation. And part of why I love Thrive is because we approach it with every kind of scientist we have. It's not just me. I don't go in because they're saying someone is traumatized. I think through it with our medical doctor. I think through it with our organizational health person, with our team dynamics person, right? We think about it on all these lenses so that, yeah, the things I won't see, you're going to see. And then we think of it like a puzzle, like, okay, let's put all that together. What would you prioritize first? How is that going to impact things? What's the leadership like? You know, what's the culture like? Where do we start? Which then you have to balance against their budget and what they're actually willing to do, which is also a whole different element of it, of course. But it is, it's so intriguing because of that, because I'm never doing the same thing twice. And of course, an organization is a dynamic thing. It exists in time. It moves forward. It's made of interlocking, interconnecting parts. And those parts happen to be complicated human beings who bring things to work that maybe, you know, date back decades or maybe happened yesterday. So it's in a state of continual evolution. Well said. So then place the environment of what's going on on top of that, right? So two years ago, we have this huge emphasis in safeguarding because a bunch of people did really bad things (laughs) to vulnerable people. And the organizations around the world woke up and said, our whole message is compromised if we're hurting the people we're trying to help. Obvious. But it took a while, right? So safeguarding was the big thing. And I love safeguarding. I I teach and train in that a lot. But now, of course, Black Lives Matter comes back up. It's been around forever, but it comes back up because of the death of George Floyd. It impacts the world in a different way. I think... I have a lot of theories about why that happened this time during COVID-19 when all of us were looking and a bit more empathetic, maybe. But it comes back up. And now there's this huge emphasis on diversity, equality, and inclusion, DEI people, right? So it's more, how do you take those kind of runs and go, actually, how do we make these changes permanent? How do we take care of vulnerable people permanently? How do we think about the oppressed permanently? And how do we do that in a systemic way that's saying, yes, you have the budget for it right now, so let's do something right now. But let's also think really long term. Where's the culture of your organization headed? Especially if you hire someone or if you change a policy and then in two years it's going to change again. So that's also something I'm passionate about as an adult learning specialist who thinks, okay, yeah, you could come in and train people once and that never sticks ever, ever, ever. So what do you really do to shift the culture of organizations in this sphere? It's tough work. And you mentioned leadership a moment ago. Is having leadership on board a prerequisite of any fundamental change? I mean, in other words, has it got to start at the top with the leadership? Buying into what you're suggesting, agreeing with the direction you're suggesting, you know, even agreeing with your diagnosis of the problem. I guess sometimes an organization might recognize it has a problem, but but have a different diagnosis. And you've got to persuade them that, no, they have to do something different in order to, to move on. Especially if they have a problem child, in a sense, like something that everybody can identify easily. Yeah. But you you are completely correct. Leadership controls organizational culture. It flows down. That's one of the very few things that you cannot change at at an organization without leadership buy-in. If you're trying to change culture, you have to have it. Now, what happens is you can still, or what we try to do at Thrive is still attempt to make interventions, 
with the idea that if you empower a bunch of people, like Black Lives Matter, actually, like diversity efforts, you empower a bunch of people and eventually the voice will be loud enough to shake leadership. But that's a very hard way to do it, if you think about it. You would much rather get the two or three people at the top or with the biggest level of influence involved and saying the same message over and over and over again, and then that flows down. Very hard to do that. Because if you, I mean, if you're a middle manager and you might, you know, have taken on board the ideas that you've talked about, about psychological safety, creating that, you might be entirely committed to that and, and really see the benefits and want to do it. But you exist in a hierarchical structure where perhaps your managers are, are entirely antipathetic to, to what you might want to do. I mean, it, does that mean that some organisations are just stuck because they've got a particular structure? Yeah, a lot of them. The psychological lead at my company would tell you the two biggest factors to employee happiness are collaborative leadership and team cohesion. Collaborative leadership is that really shouldn't have just three people at the top, right? That there's a lot of voices heard and that there's psychological safety to make your voice heard with your leaders, right? So there's always this interworking going on. And then team cohesion is, can we all work towards one goal? and be completely different as human beings, but work towards one goal. Those two factors determine more at your organizational culture than anything else. So you see that team team cohesion, yes, but the leadership is a huge, huge factor. And we do have times when we say, I'm sorry, we can't help because there's kind of a refusal to move anywhere. And I will tell you, in an interesting way, humanitarians can be quite behind in that, like, in a lot of the ways that corporations have moved forward, it's taking humanitarians or the industry or the helping industry. I don't know where to stop with how big that's gotten. <laughs> We're behind. Yeah. And and that's a bit odd to me. Like what what's happened that we're so behind? But it's there. Because at the same time, I, I look at people like, like the people we've mentioned earlier, even Coca-Cola, and they're thinking much more in a team way which is a healthier way to think. And we still have this very sort of top-down rigidity that I don't, I don't get. And is it the case that if someone's in an organisation where the mission is to do good, you know, humanitarian or developmental or environmental, they come to their job with a mindset that that mission must come first and maybe, maybe there are sacrifices that need to be made and maybe that means they're not, you know, they see it as rocking the boat to sort of speak up and say, well, you know, maybe we should be doing this or maybe this is dysfunctioning. Is that something you encounter? Yeah, all the time. So that's very true. The, the highest level of resilience for humanitarians is their purpose, which is what you're getting at. They know, this is why I'm here, this is why I'm doing it. And that's a huge resilient factor. Like when you are rocked, when COVID-19 happens, you will stay somewhere because you believe in the vision and mission. So in that way, we are very powerful people. But you've also got to remember that humanitarians are encultured in the places where they work too. And most humanitarians nowadays are national staff wherever they're working, right? And Unfortunately, because of the history of things like colonialism, what we talked about earlier, and, you know, what's happened with oppressed societies, there's still this look up to authority as you will tell me what to do and I'll do that. Or I expect to be questioned or shamed 
if I do something out of line, right? So those things are still very deeply ingrained and need to be kind of rooted out as well in the historical nature of of this work. I know you're a big believer in psychological first aid, and I guess that the world that we have that we have found ourselves in post COVID or uh, during COVID means there's an ever greater need for psychological first aid. Tell me just a little bit about what what you understand by that, and and what role you see for it in the future. It's ironic because I'm I'm a big believer, and yet maybe for not the same reasons that you would think. <laughs> so psychological first aid is just this idea, same as medical first aid that there is someone there right after an incident occurs for you to talk to, okay? That's like the base level of it. It is not therapy at all, and it's great that it's not, just like medical first aid is not surgery usually, because anyone can do it who's trained, who gets the principles, whatever. That's what makes it great is it's not that it's the healing thing, actually, It's that you are communicating with someone, you are connecting with someone right after the worst thing in your life. That's the power of it. It's not the methodology of it. It's not that you're healing someone. It's the connection. And so what we found is actually there's kind of some different steps that different people believe in depending on there's a there's a WHO methodology, right? There's another kind of methodology that comes from different health source in in the Europe nations, but it doesn't really matter. (laughs) If you sit down with someone, you provide active listening. You don't pressure them. That's quite a big thing in in psychological versus you don't force them to tell their trauma story. Instead, you provide practical coping mechanisms, practical help. You know, you think through where are you going to stay tonight? Who are you going to talk to next? Where's your financial aid coming from? Those practical things. If you address that, the person feels cared for, loved, and it sparks their healing. That's all there is to it. So if if trauma is something that sort of resonates through the individual, you know, through the body, it's like a way of sort of containing the aftershock. Is that is that one way to Wow. You know, for someone <laughs> that you said was going to ask basic questions, that's better said than a lot of people. That's exactly what it does is it contains it. Yeah. And right after a trauma, containment is very powerful because you actually feel broken and open and, and not in control. So it provides that sense of containment and control in a very powerful way. Yeah. Erin, tell me a little bit about how Humentum Connect plays a part in your your working life? What, what do you sort of look to it for? How do you interact with it? Um, you won't be surprised by this, but talking to other people, <laughs> joining with other people in the field, thinking through how are you approaching this? How are we approaching this? What makes sense, right? It's all, for me, it's always about connecting with other people. And I never assume that I have the latest information or the latest way of trying something. And the other thing about Humentum Connect is people are more willing to talk about what they're trying. That it's, it's maybe a psychologically safe place. That's what's happening, right? Is people are saying, mm, I have this issue or what's going on. And then actually just providing a place to put solutions in a powerful way that's accessible to everybody. There's that accessible word too that's come up quite a few times. The last thing I wanted to ask you today is if you could sit down with a 21-year-old Erin with the benefit of the, the wisdom you've gained, what, what would, if you only had a, you know, a minute with her, what would, you, what would you try to impart to her? Whoa. 
<laughs> it's a really tough question, actually. I think off off the top of my head, I think to fast track the process of self-compassion and self-acceptance. You know, developmentally, it makes sense that that happens in your 30s. You start to care less about what other people think. But wow, I mean, I work with a lot of people and I think half of the work I do is about compassion. It's even become a technique in therapy, compassion-focused therapy, because we just are in a world where the standards are so high and you have to be so careful about what you're doing and internal critique is so heavy. I think I would just go back and love on her and say, you are completely okay. Everything turns out really well. You end up loving your job, your family, <laughs> your life, where you live. You will live internationally, by the way. <laughs> and, you know, I would reassure. That's all I would do. Not tell her the future, but reassure her that everything turns out okay and that she can kind of let herself off the hook. My guest on this episode of Social X, the podcast from Humentum, was Erin Rotich from Thrive Worldwide. My thanks to Erin for a fascinating conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the program wherever you get your podcasts, and do send us your suggestions for future episodes via the Social X page on the website at humentum.org. Until next time, thanks for listening, and goodbye.